Father, we do thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you for the food of your holy word. We pray that you would plant your truth deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, so that Christ might be seen in us and the world may come to know him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you prosperity. What a promise. Uh, Does anyone not want a prosperous life? That sounds like a great promise to me. I'd like that. But what do we mean by that? What is prosperity? What is success? I guess we all define those things in different ways. Um, How do you think your friends and neighbours and colleagues define success? It's a kind of truism, isn't it, that people live for money and wealth. Uh, Lots of people seem to, but when you dig down a bit, you realise, of course, that usually money is a means to something else. Maybe it's the means to security. You know, I need the family secure. I need the mortgage paid off. It might be the means to status, showing off having people think well of you because, I don't know, because you drive the right car, you live in the right area, you've got your kids at the right schools or whatever. It might be just the means to experiencing the world. That seems to be what many people are living for, you know, just packing in as many new experiences as possible, travelling, flitting from one thing to the next so that you can kind of see it, experience it all. But what about us? Fast forward maybe 10, 20, 50 years. What would make you feel like you've made it? What would make you feel like you've achieved success, achieved prosperity? If you call yourself a Christian, a good question to consider is how different are your goals and aspirations and desires from maybe non-Christian friends and colleagues? How different are they? How different should they be? There's a story Jesus told about a rich man who prospered in his life and whose work produced a huge and increasing crop. And he found that he ran out of space to store this crop in his barns. So he thought, what do I need to do? I know what I need to do. I need to build bigger barns to store all my hard-owned wealth. And then I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink and be merry. And Jesus says, God said to him, you fool, which is the language of Proverbs, isn't it? You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? See, it's often been said that success at the wrong things is failure. Isn't that true? Success at the wrong things is failure. And so what then is the right kind of success and prosperity to aim for in our lives? That's what Solomon is speaking to his son about here. We're into the kind of meat of Proverbs 1 to 9 now. We're done with the introductions to the introduction and all that kind of thing. And and, and this sermon actually is intended to cover all of of chapters 3 and 4. But we're only going to look at these first 18 verses. You may be relieved to know. But you can go home, you can read the rest of these these two chapters, and hopefully you can see these kind of themes that we're looking at in this time together now in the rest of those verses. 
See, Solomon's already flagged up the idea that wisdom leads to prosperity in the first couple of chapters. So chapter 1, verse 33, whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. Chapter 2, verse 8, he guards the course of the just. He protects the way of his faithful ones. So as he returns to this this thought of prosperity in in chapter 3, verse 2, let's see how these verses answer that question that I've put on the handout. If you look um, at the green piece of paper, what does true prosperity look like? Well, first, from verses 3 to 8, it means humbling yourself before God. Humbling yourself before God. Uh, Solomon has some words, first of all, about love and faithfulness in verse 3. It's true, isn't it, that that, that the people we find most attractive in the non-romantic sense, and perhaps too in the romantic sense sometimes, the people we find most attractive are those who constantly think beyond themselves. People who who are loving, who are trustworthy, who never let you down. Those are friends worth seeking out. And Solomon is saying, be like that to others and you will find that life goes well. Now, that much is probably self-evident if we think about it. And I guess we we all probably think it would be great to be more loving and more faithful. But our broken and fallen hearts uh, let us down and we find that we are self-centred and untrustworthy, even while we're trying to do the opposite. So where does the motivation and the power come from to be like that? Well, the answer is in those famous words in verses 5 and 6. If you have a look at them, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Those verses spell out what trusting God looks like. It means trusting him entirely, exclusively, exhaustively. Can you see that? Entirely, all your heart undivided, no split allegiance, all for him, exclusively, lean not on your own understanding, exhaustively, in all your ways, acknowledge him. For sinful, self-centred human beings like all of us, this is, this is nothing less than a complete revolution in the way we see the world. See, it is possible to try and live the Christian life with a form of Christianity that still has me at the centre. See, I'm still basically the boss, and God kind of helps me on my terms. So he's like a kind of spiritual AA man that I call on when I need help. If you're new to the UK, I don't know if you've come across the AA, but uh, they're the guys in the yellow vans, and they go around when you break down in your car, and you, you can phone them up, and they come and help you. And I've always found the AA guys who come are always amazingly helpful. They're just cheerful, they're positive, they want to fix your problem, they want to help you get get on your way. And they do it fantastically. But, you know, the thing about the AA man is when the problem's solved, it's time for the AA man to go away, isn't it? You you don't want him to hang around, that would be a bit awkward. I don't really need him then. And actually, I think sometimes we see God like that. You know, he's there when I need him. When I've got a problem, I go to him and I say, look, you know, you've got to help me fix this problem, God. But actually, I'm still really the centre. He's there on my terms when I need him. Uh, But life is revolving around me. And a lot of the time, you know, I'm kind of okay as I am. Thanks very much. It's a bit awkward if you hang around. 
or we won't truly understand what these verses are talking about until we realise that the Christian life has to revolve not around me, but around him, around God. That the centre of my life isn't me, at the centre of my life is him. It's a kind of Copernican revolution. You know, the earth revolves around the sun, not the other way around. So I must trust him entirely, exclusively, exhaustively, not just when I need him, but in everything, all the time, all centred around him. Because there's a danger when we, when we talk about wisdom that we, we merely hear a kind of souped-up version of what the world offers anyway. You know, actually, plenty of people in the world want to be wise. I want to be the wise guy. I want to be the guru. I want to be the kind of person that people look up to. They come to me with their problems. Aren't I great? And when that happens and I kind of help them, oh, well, you know, a little pat on the back. Well done me. I'm so wise. I'm helping people. But you see, in, in that kind of attitude, I'm still at the centre. It's still all about me, isn't it? And I wonder if that attitude is a temptation for us sometimes. Really, it's just another form of pride, isn't it? A way of puffing ourselves up. But what does Solomon say? Lean not on your own understanding. See, the aim of wisdom is not to get your head full of more knowledge. You know, look at me. Look, look how much I know about the Bible. Look, how I, look at how I can answer all your questions about God. Look, at, look how I'm the kind of person that people think of when they've got a, a question. They think, oh yes, I'm going to go and ask them. What is the aim of wisdom? Not that. The aim of wisdom is to trust in the Lord with all your heart. To lean on him, not on ourselves. Now, of course, if you've read a few books, if you've done some study, if you've been to theological college, even if you've become a senior minister, that there may be ways in which, you know, you do know a few things that others don't know and you, can, you may be able to help them. But actually, that's not the same as being somebody who trusts in the Lord with all their heart. We, we, we tend to think of maturity in life as growing in independence. Isn't that right? Being able to survive on our own. We think, that yeah, that's maturity when you can kind of make it by yourself. But the striking thing is that maturity in the Christian life actually is the complete opposite of that. Can you see that? It is growing in our dependence. Not independence, dependence. Realising that actually we're not self-made people. That we were created to depend on God in everything. And so actually the, the kind of feature of the Christian life is not a kind of growing strength as we go from strength to strength, but actually a growing acknowledgement of weakness, of how much we need the God who made us. We need to live in dependence on him. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What does, what does that look like then? Well, at a very basic level, that, that means praying, doesn't it? If we, if we love Studying the Bible, is our study matched by prayer? Is it matched by this dependence on God? We saw last week that the Bible is full of treasure. It's a joy, it's a privilege. Go searching for treasure in God's word. Don't stop till you find us. But actually, for some of us, that's never the issue, is it? You know, we love study, we love discussion, we love finding out more about Jesus. But does that turn us to prayer and to dependence on God, or does it simply puff us up? And then as we go through our daily lives, are we conscious of God? 
wherever we go. You know, that we find ourselves wherever we're at saying, actually, Lord, this is your world. My life is not my own. All of this is a gift from you. Every person I encounter, every situation I find myself in is a chance to glorify the God who made me, to point others to him in my words and in my deeds. That's the first thing to think about. True success, true prosperity looks like the opposite of what you might think. It doesn't start by by puffing yourself up. It starts with humbling yourself before God. That's the first thing. Then secondly, if you look, honouring God in want and in plenty from verses 9 to 12. Honouring God in want and in plenty. See, on the face of it, if you look, verse 9, it seems we have another promise about prosperity. Honour the Lord with your wealth, verse 9. A more accurate translation would be from your wealth. Honour the Lord from your wealth. And and, and look what will happen to your barns and your vats. They will be filled. They will brim over. Now, some people have taken verses like this, and they've turned them into what is often called the prosperity gospel. The idea that, you know, if you have enough faith... If you do enough good things, well, God will make you prosperous in this life. Lots of people around you saying these kind of things. I mean, just just one example, one that you might have come across, this guy, Joel Osteen. So he he talks about claiming your desires by faith. And he tells a story about how uh, he and his wife saw this house that they liked. They were just driving around and they saw uh, 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 and they thought... Oh, you know, this is an amazing house, but we can't possibly afford it. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live here? And his wife said, look, you've got to claim this by faith. And he said, oh, I'm not sure about that. And he said, no, no, no. She said, you know, you you haven't got enough faith. You've got to trust God. He's going to give this to you. And sure enough, they're now living in that house that they claimed by faith. And that's his kind of story. God will give you the life you desire if only you trust him properly. That is the kind of claim that, that, that goes around with that prosperity gospel message. What do you make of that? I think the thing, if you look at these verses here, is the thing is that it only tells half the story. And by itself, it is therefore deeply misleading and wrong. So you don't, you don't even have to look elsewhere in the Bible to see it only tells half the story. Just look at the very next verse. Verse 11. What is God's best for us? That's the verse That's the phrase that's often used. We often think it must be material prosperity and anything short of that is a sign that we've fallen from grace. But verse 11, if you look, says the opposite, doesn't it? It says, do not despise the Lord's discipline because he disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. Now, do you see what he's saying? It's not that times of of difficulty, of, of want, of pain, of hardship, it's not that those are signs of God's displeasure, You know, oh, bad Christian, you've been a bad Christian this week, that's why you're suffering in your life. That's not what he's saying, is it? It's the very opposite. If you're a parent, have you ever thought about why it is that we discipline children, whatever form that might take? I heard someone wise a few years ago talk about how we don't discipline in spite of our love, as if you dole out some kind of punishment and then you say after that, it's okay, I still love you. It's not that, it's saying, I'm disciplining you because I love you. I I love you too much to let you get away with this behaviour, to let you get away with thinking the world is centred around you and you can just do whatever you like without, without consequences because I love you and I want you to see that if you carry on in this path through this world, you're going to end in disaster. That's love, isn't it? 
It's loving discipline. And if that's how we treat our children, actually that is how God treats us. Now maybe your experience of discipline from a father or a parent has not been loving or good or kind. And of course, sadly, that will sometimes be the case. But actually, this is a father. This God is a father who delights in his children, who never flies off the handle, who never acts out of malice or or on a whim or out of selfishness, but only for the good of his children. But if we think God is in the business simply of doling out treats to those who have enough faith, we will miss the chance to grow and really know God as our loving Father who loves us not just in plenty but in want, in hard times. I've begun to experience that just a little bit for myself over the last sort of 15 years as I've developed the the chronic illnesses of Crohn's disease and and rheumatoid arthritis. I had two hip replacements, believe it or not. I had major bowel surgery. And actually, you know, through that time and, and continuing in some ways at different times, it's been very painful times for me, for the family. And I know actually, you know, many here will have experienced things like that or different things which are painful over time. And if you think that God is, is only in the business of making life here and now as good as it can possibly be, well, what do you do when those tough times come? How do you respond to them? Because, you know, it's not always easy to see how God is using a time of trial when you're in the middle of it. But while I would, you know, I would much prefer not to have these ongoing illnesses or whatever, you know, and of course we'd all testify to that in in one sense with, with the weakness that it brings. But I can look back and I can see how God has, in my life, has used those times to draw me to depend on him, to say, actually, Lord, I realize I cannot do this by myself. I'm not self-sufficient. I'm not self-made. I need to depend on you, God. Because in times of weakness, it's so clear that there's nowhere else to turn. But in contrast to that, the, 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 the prosperity gospel only reads some of what the Bible says and it ignores those parts because, okay, it's true that suffering is not part of God's original plan for his world. One day there will be no more chronic illness, no more bereavement, no more unemployment, no more relationship breakdown, no more infertility, no more death. None of the things that make us cry and struggle and suffer. But till then, we need to hear that life will not always be comfortable. God's will is not our happiness, but our holiness. C.S. Lewis put it like this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. He's trying to get us to see you need to depend on him. How then will that affect our prayers? See, even if we don't buy into the prosperity gospel thing, you know... Actually, do our prayers not often sometimes end up looking a bit like shopping lists of stuff that, you know, I'd like this, Lord, please, would you sort this out? And actually, that's kind of buying into that, isn't it? When it's just sort of, you know, these things would make my life easier, Lord, please provide them. Actually, we are not praying with the priorities that God has for our lives, not our happiness, but our holiness, Not just the here and now, but eternity. 
How's, how's that going to change the way that we pray? Now you might, you know, you look at the look at the the passage. You might be still looking at verse nine and thinking, but hang on, there's quite a sort of um, clear promise here. You know, is this about tithing your income? That, that, that this is what leads to prosperity, verse nine and ten. And I think again, you have to read this verse alongside everything else the Bible says about wealth. Because it's certainly true that giving is a healthy spiritual discipline because it helps us to remember that all we have comes from God. This is not mine, Lord. This is yours. From what you've given me, I'm giving back to you. It's that kind of idea. And we give with the same generosity that he has shown us in Christ. He's given everything for us. So nothing is too much to give back to him. But as we saw last week, the blessing that is promised when we respond like that is ultimately eternal. It's not just about this life. And more than that, for every proverb that promises blessing to the righteous, you just need to know that actually Proverbs warns also that sometimes the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. So even within the world of Proverbs, it's not quite as simple as saying, do this and material prosperity will come. There is an acknowledgement that the world is more complicated than that. And so we need to trust him and honour him in want and in plenty. Just like Paul puts it in Philippians chapter 4, he says, I have learnt the secret of contentment in every situation, whether in want or in plenty. Can we say that? So that's the second thing then about what true prosperity looks like. Then thirdly, from verses 13 to 18, valuing wisdom above all else. Here's the third way that true prosperity is defined. It is simply finding wisdom. And remember, that's not the wisdom that puffs up and makes us look great, but the wisdom that says, next to God, I know nothing. I need to depend on him. I just, I need him. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, verse 13. Like when Jesus says, if you lose your life for him, you will save it. You see, this is real, lasting, true value. Now, do you know what the uh, best performing shares were in the FTSE 100 between 1990 and 2015? Okay, quite a long period, 25 years. Now, others will know a lot more about this than I do. But as far as I understand it, the best performing company in the FTSE 100 in that time was Next Retail. Okay? At the beginning of 1991, their shares were worth £12.50 each. Okay, £12.50. By 2015, they had risen to an extraordinary £8,000 each. Now, they've lost a bit of that value since then, but I think if I've got it right, that that is a 64,000% rise in value. So if you'd bought £1,000 worth of of shares in Next in 1991, by 2015, you would have had well over half a million pounds. It's not bad, is it? Did anyone do that, by the way? (laughs) Well, look at what Solomon says about wisdom. Look at what he says in verse 14. She is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. Don't we need to hear this in 21st century northwest London? You know, wealth is great. Proverbs agrees with that up to a point. You know, there are plenty of verses later in Proverbs agreeing, oh yeah, wealth is brilliant, it's a fortress, it provides security, it can be used for all kinds of good things. 
But we know, don't we, that silver and gold can buy a house, but they can't make a home. They can put food on the table, but they can't create fellowship. It takes God-fearing, God-centered wisdom to do that. Do you, do you value wisdom like that? She is a tree of life to those who embrace her, verse 18. The tree of life, what was that? That was offered to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? In the garden, until they rebelled by trying to seek wisdom independently. By eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were in one way doing what, what we so often do, which is trying to do their own form of wisdom that puffed themselves up. That's what eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil kind of represented. We want to be the bosses. We want to be in charge, rather than having to depend on God. That's what that first sin was about. But for those who humble themselves before God and value his wisdom above all else, you get access once again to that tree. Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden so they couldn't eat from the tree of life. But humble yourself before God, honour him, and you'll find wisdom is a tree of life, a source of immortality and healing. Wisdom, this wisdom, is the wisdom worth having, isn't it? Let me tell you about one lady who really gets this. You might have heard of her. She's called Johnny Erickson Tarda. And uh, she was injured in a a diving accident in 1967, aged 18. And she became a quadriplegic, confined to a wheelchair. And she's written loads of books. One of them has a, you know, lots of them are fantastic. One of them has a brilliant title. It's called The God I Love, A Lifetime of Walking with Jesus. Now just think about that for a moment. She hasn't walked since 1967, but she's been walking with Jesus. And everything she writes and says points to her faith in God, even in the midst of deepest distress and suffering. Because at the beginning of her life, you know, would spending the majority of it in a wheelchair have been in her grand plan for her life? Would she have thought of that as kind of God's best for her life? Well, surely not. But today she says things like this. I thank God for the freedom I have found in this wheelchair. What an extraordinary thing to say. She she testifies to the way God has worked in her life through her many struggles. Isn't that true prosperity? Isn't that real success? That is, humbling yourself before God, choosing not to go into an eternal rage. How, you know, how God could you let this happen to me? But actually to, to trust him, to trust in the Lord with all her heart, leaning not on her own understanding, but going his way in all her ways. That is honouring God in want and in plenty. That is valuing wisdom above all things. That's what she's doing, because wisdom is exactly what she's found, despite her obvious ongoing disability. What about us? It's sometimes said that if you want to know what a Christian really values, look at their hopes and dreams for their children. So if we've got children, grandchildren, godchildren, what are our prayers for them, our hopes, our dreams? Is it it, it just doing well at school, getting the grades, the right university, health and wealth? How do those things stack up next to the priorities of Proverbs chapter 3? What's actually going to last into eternity? Proverbs puts it like this later on, chapter 16, verse 8. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Better a little with righteousness than much gain with injustice. Chapter 17, verse 1. 
better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. How does that change our desires for ourselves, our families? Perhaps a good question is this. If your children ended up missionaries in a third world country, would you weep or whoop? That's children. What about us then? Here's a good question. How do our values differ from our non-Christian neighbours, our colleagues, if we're trusting in Jesus? You know, do our lives look fairly similar except we're in church on Sundays? Would anyone be surprised by the choices that we've made because we are trusting in Jesus? And if the answer is, well, you know, I guess not that much different, and no, really, they, they wouldn't be that surprised... Well, it may just be that we're buying into a version of wisdom that fits the world's way of doing things, that ultimately is about puffing ourselves up, that is seeing God still as that spiritual AA man who's there to kind of help me when I need him, rather than doing that Copernican revolution so that our lives revolve around him. What's that going to look like? It will be different for each of us. And and the whole thing about this wisdom thing is there are no rules, are there, in, in this But that's why we need wisdom. You know, do you keep going for promotions? Do you put the extra hours in? Do you shun that culture deliberately in order to spend time with friends and family? Do you tutor your children? Do you leave a Bible on your desk at work just to make a point? Actually, for all those things, there's no rules, but we need wisdom. And actually, our answers to those questions will be hugely affected by whether we're seeking worldly prosperity like everyone else, or whether we're we're seeking true prosperity that values godly wisdom as the goal most worth pursuing and sees the means of achieving that as humility rather than self-promotion and perseveres in both want and plenty. Let's reflect on that for a moment now and then I'll, I'll lead us in prayer as we finish. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Father, wherever we stand with you this morning, help us to see what it means to humble ourselves before you. Pray that if we've not yet bowed the knee to you, that you would give us the eyes to see the futility of trying to go our own way without you, of buying into a form of prosperity that will never lead to total joy and prosperity for eternity. Help us instead to humble ourselves before you, to Order you, not just when things are going well, but when things are tough too. To put our trust in you to shape us and make us more like Jesus through all the experiences we have in life. So that we may honour wisdom above all things.